Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Back in chapter 17, the covenant of circumcision was imposed upon Abraham and everyone in his household. This was done in order to emasculate the males under the covenant in order to emphasize God's authority and ownership over the progeny. So circumcision then is an invitation to God's community and a physical reminder of one's obedience and submission to God's providence. So the idea here is that God is completely in control of all reproduction, as he also opens and closes women's wombs. God is the sole judge, but here in chapter 34 we have an abuse of this practice. Certain characters will impose circumcision upon their enemies, using that as a weapon to weaken them and then slaughter them in that compromised state. And it just so happens these characters are the progenitors of Israel's priestly class. In other words, the upper echelon of society. Yikes. Let's hear the story. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for a wife. So we begin this chapter with the defilement of Jacob's daughter Dina. Even here, with these early verses, there is quite a lot to point out. To begin with, Dina is the feminine form of the verb din, meaning to judge. So Shechem defiling judgment is itself something to take note of. That is also how she is functioning. Also, note that women in the Bible tend to represent communities as a whole, so here Dina is clearly representing the children of Jacob, and by extension the whole Israelite community. So the main point is that the Israelites are attacked by the Shechemites. The name Shechem as well is interesting as it carries the meaning of a ridge or a shoulder. Here one gets the connotation of being at the edge of something, somewhere unstable. To make matters even more unsettling, the father of Shechem is named Hamor, which means to ferment or to cause trouble. So the scriptural authors are certainly brewing an atmosphere with these functional names. Right, and it is also important to point out that this is the only daughter Jacob has, so there is an inborn preciousness about her. None of Jacob's sons have taken wives either, so not only is Dinah a virgin functionally, she represents the current status of Jacob's house. It is without children. It has an unbroken womb. 
before appropriate unions can be made and Jacob's son's wives and Dinah herself can have children of their own, Dinah is raped by this stranger. The gravity of the situation is certainly heavy. The opening of this story also reminds me of the two stories where Abraham and Isaac each come into the land of the Philistines and allowed their wives to be taken by the royal figure. Like every biblical story, we have all been prepped ahead of time to hear this story. Possessiveness and entitlement, according to the Bible, is natural for kings. It is something that you can expect when encountering a king. Abraham and Isaac assumed that the king of the Philistines would take their beautiful wife for himself, and they both guessed correctly. But what they were wrong to assume was the king's character. It is possible, and maybe even likely considering the outcome of those stories, that had Abraham and Isaac told the king that those women were indeed their wives and not their sisters, the king probably would have let them be, since they were spoken for. Here in this story, the prince Shechem displays a similar attitude of entitlement and possessiveness, taking a woman that he finds pleasing for himself. But the difference here is that he doesn't confer with the men of her house at all. He just takes her immediately and defiles her. It's definitely bad news, but as her name suggests, there will be judgment. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price, and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. It's really interesting how silent Jacob is in this interaction. His sons are the ones who are doing all the dealing with Hamor. In verse 5, we hear that Jacob becomes aware of what happened, and he held his peace, uh, according to the translation. However, the Hebrew word seems to denote this idea of being watchful and discerning without intervening. And, of course, that Hebrew word is harash. The only other time that word is used in Genesis is when Abraham's servant goes to get Isaac a wife, and it says he watched and kept silent to see if Yahweh had prospered his journey. The verb harash also has a very basic meaning of cutting into soil or plowing, so typically when applied to a person, metaphorically, it can mean to remain silent, but, uh, you know, discerning. And it can also have a negative connotation, meaning to devise or to concoct mischief or something along those lines, depending on the context. It has this sort of double meaning. The connotation here, though, is that Jacob is simply being watchful and discerning, which is in character for him. He was watchful of the shepherds in Mesopotamia to discern their manner of doing things before he crafted a situation to earn Rachel's favor. He was watchful of Esau and his party as they approached Jacob so he could respond accordingly as to not be murdered by his brother. 
So I believe that here, with this verb charash, the text is cluing us into Jacob's behavior once again, and potentially setting up some expectations about how he might make the most out of the situation for himself, as per his discerning nature and craftiness that we are familiar with. Whether or not the text follows through on that setup, in a way that we expect, we'll have to wait and see. It really is interesting that he's not immediately reacting to the situation, which would normally seem to be a bit out of character for him. Again, it's important to remember that Dina is a literary character, and that she represents the community of Israel in this story. To our modern ears, we may instantly jump to the defense of Jacob's sons as they eventually react violently to this. I think if any of us were literally in that situation where our sister or any other woman in our lives was raped, we'd naturally at least have the impulse to retaliate. But this isn't the point that the scripture is making. We have to let the scripture tell its own story on its own terms, rather than interpreting it based on our own experience and presuppositions. In other words, it's easy to get off track with passages like this, and that's why it's so dangerous to neglect the literary nature of the Bible. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. This scene is a classic Jacobean exchange, or at least it seems like one. We are introduced to the characters in play, Jacob, Hamor and Shechem, and Jacob's sons. Up until this point, we've gotten used to Jacob making deals and normally coming out on top. We hear that Hamor and Shechem have arrived to make a deal with Jacob, but it is not Jacob who speaks. It is his angry sons. The text itself even tells us that Jacob's sons answer Hamor and Shechem deceitfully. They are taking after their father, but interestingly, their father is in the background observing the situation, hopefully learning. He is Harash. That's a good point, and it's also good to mention that in the Bible, to be called the son of someone is not always referring to literal parenthood. Obviously, as per the story, the sons of Jacob are his actual sons, but there are several places in Scripture where the function of son is purely literary and refers to similar attributes and behavior in a character. For instance, in the New Testament, Peter is sometimes called the son of Jonah. Now, one could posit that this is simply referring to his biological father, but it seems like an arbitrary detail if that's the case. If we say that Peter being called the son of Jonah is a reference to the Old Testament character, then it makes perfect sense. Both men are characterized by their struggle with the Gentile, and they also run away from the mission that God called them to do. So it's no wonder that the sons of Jacob are acting like him. This also makes the broader point as an admonition for Israel. No Israelite hearing this text could be off the hook. The authors are making sure of this. The original recipients of this text are not only being told that their forefather was a swindler by all accounts, 
but that they too are swindlers and take after their forefather and all his negative qualities. In verses 15 through 17, we hear the details that Jacob's sons lay out, that all the people of Hamor be circumcised, including Hamor and Shechem. This is exactly the sociocultural function of circumcision that the Bible usurps in the covenant of circumcision between God and Abraham's descendants. Jacob's sons are seeking to display some degree of power over the people of Hamor by this ritual that they no doubt learned from their family's relationship with Yahweh. However, they are not commanding the Hamorites to be obedient to Yahweh and take on the mark of circumcision via that obedience, but they are enforcing circumcision as a transactional instrument. Hamor and Shechem are in a vulnerable position, willing to be subjugated so that Shechem, the prince, can get what he wants. And Jacob's sons take advantage of that, totally ignorant of the actual function of circumcision that their forefather received. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Let us agree with them that they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. We hear that Hamor and Shechem were pleased with the agreement, and they rushed to enforce this new circumcision law upon their people. They spoke to the city in such a way as to suggest that them being circumcised would assimilate Jacob's family into their city so that all of Jacob's possessions would be theirs, which is an interesting detail for the text to include. We understand circumcision to function in an opposite manner. Normally, the people who are circumcised are circumcised through an act of subjugation by their ruling people. Jacob's family would then be the subjugators. Perhaps this was just Hamor sugarcoating the matter. I can't imagine the people of the city actually being pleased about this new statute. In fact, I can't help but hear Hamor's decree to the city as a bit tragic. You know, what his son did was horrible and worthy of reprimand, but this image of peace among the people seems like a worthy goal. We know that it is vain, but Hamor seems to be striving for peace, at least on the surface, which makes it all the more bitter when we hear what Jacob's sons end up doing as opposed to making peace. Perhaps peace could have been made. Maybe Hamor didn't even know that Shechem defiled this innocent girl, and perhaps had he known, he wouldn't have made all these deals for his son's happiness, and he would have instead reprimanded his son. I wonder if Hamor is supposed to be an image of Isaac. Isaac was the unknowing father. He simply wanted prosperity and goodness for both of his sons, and he unknowingly gave his inheritance to the unworthy son after being put in a precarious position. Now, here Hamor is the unknowing father swearing away his city for the sake of his unworthy son's happiness. Maybe that is why Jacob is so quiet. He is seeing the poison of his own behavior from the outside. Regardless, 
Peace is not possible because the anger of Jacob's sons was too consuming for any good to come of this situation. As Yoda says, once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Jacob's sons were dominated by anger, and they allowed it to dominate their actions. And we are about to see the apex of their submission, not to God, but to their own anger. And this is really touching on what the scriptural proposition is, which is for these opposing tribes who would normally be enemies, share common table fellowship under the monarchy of the scriptural God. This is the invitation of the covenant of circumcision. It's not to be forced upon the Gentiles, but to be peacefully offered. The ideal is not for the Israelites embodied in the sons of Jacob to be rulers over the Gentiles, but to be co-slaves under the rulership of Yahweh Elohim. Even though Jacob was horribly wronged by the Shechemites, the scriptural response is not to add to the suffering by retaliating and thus reinforcing this bitter cycle. The scriptural response is to open your own doors further. It's interesting that the authors are framing this story in this manner. They are setting this up and showing the ideal end to this conflict, only to highlight where Israel falls short as we read on. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city when it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out to Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. And here the climax of this Jacobean conflict comes to fruition. A people are cheated and robbed, and in this extreme example, they are murdered. An entire city's male population is murdered for an act that was committed by one person. It is not as if the city was complacent in Shechem's defiling of Dinah. We have no reason to believe they were, nor a reason to believe they were even aware of it. We're not made out to believe that the city is full of awful people by any means. Jacob's sons are just angry, and they take matters into their own hands. And remember, this story revolves around Dinah, or in Hebrew, Dinah, the feminine form of the word Din, which is judgment. Here, Jacob's sons are acting as judges, which is not their function. The only judge is God. There are glaring holes in the judgment made by Jacob's sons, and a whole slew of innocent people die because of their arrogance and their submission to their own emotional anger. They totally overthrow the city and take all that is in it for themselves. This, of course, is a foreshadowing of the conquest of Canaan, but not in a positive way. In this example, we can clearly see the arrogance and entitlement of Jacob's sons, so we shouldn't miss it. This is bad news. As per this climax, I think it would be worthwhile to discuss another event in the scriptural tradition, which is really similar to this story and may have even provided its backdrop, although that is admittedly speculative. In the first book of Maccabees, we begin with a long 
exposition about the gradual Hellenization of Judah following the death of Alexander the Great and the rise of his successors, in this case the Seleucids. By the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jews have started to embrace Hellenism. They've stopped circumcising their male children, they failed to keep the Sabbath, and worst of all, they have started to desecrate the temple services by offering unclean animals to God. At a climactic breaking point, the patriarch of the Hasmonean family, Matathias, slays an apostate Hellenized Jew and leads his sons in a revolt against the Greeks and the Jews they have converted. In a trailblaze of fury, they forcibly circumcise the Jewish children who had previously been under Hellenized cultural customs, thus transferring the meaning of circumcision from being an invitation to exist as brethren under the scriptural God and into a cultural flag to be weaponized. Circumcision, as a result, becomes the icon of the Judean in contrast to their enemies. In fact, the famous quote-unquote hero of the revolt is named Judah Maccabee, which literally means the hammer of the Jews. This is the exact opposite of how the scriptural God commands us to interact with our enemies in both testaments of the Bible. And it's no mistake that the books of the Maccabees are the last narratives in the scriptural story before the New Testament commences. There, Paul especially critiques this Judean attitude embodied in the Hasmonean Revolt. This is exactly what happens in Genesis 34. Other nations defile the community of Israel, which is expressed in the character of Dina in Genesis and in the defilement of the temple in 1 Maccabees. As a result, the sons of Jacob use circumcision as a weapon against those nations. In Genesis, it is to weaken the opponent in order to capitalize on their weakness, and in 1 Maccabees, it's to gain political leverage. Either way, both accounts show the complete and utter failure of the Israelites to live according to the statutes set by them by their God. And both accounts are contrasted greatly in the New Testament when Jesus and Paul preach the exact inverse of this and lead by the same example. It would seem that turning the other cheek would be counterproductive in the face of persecution but history has demonstrated that it actually works. The proof lies nearly 400 years after the canon was first committed to writing, when not only many Gentiles were converted to Christ, but entire empires. The most notable, of course, being Rome, the great enemy of the church in the early centuries of its existence, and the heirs to Hellenism. Imagine the shock and disbelief that a second-century Christian would feel if one told them that for the next millennia, the most important church councils would be convoked by the emperor of Rome of all people, and that the Christian church would be the institution which defined the empire. Now, of course, obviously, there comes a whole host of problems with the imperialized church post-Constantine, but that's a whole other topic. The point is, the scriptural paradigm works. So, let's learn from scripture first, but also remember that history only reinforces what scripture teaches about human behavior.
Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble upon me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And here the script is flipped. I personally would have expected Jacob to approve, considering the way he cheated and robbed everyone else he met in conflict. However, he actually admonishes his sons for what they did. Plain and simple. He did not take part in their wicked behavior, and he admonishes them afterward. He certainly could have done more to prevent all the bloodshed, but this is still a far cry from how Jacob has been presented thus far. And the real kicker comes in the last verse, verse 31. Jacob's sons say to him, Should he treat our sisters like a prostitute? The word for prostitute is the exact same word as the word that describes the nation of Israel later in the biblical story when it accuses Israel of playing the harlot, prostituting themselves off to other gods. Israel is the real harlot, selling themselves off to every whim and desire at the expense of their neighbor. No, it's not okay that Shechem treated Dinah like a prostitute, but that doesn't give her brothers the right to slaughter every man in the city for the actions of that one man. Jacob's behavior here is so significant, in fact, that we finally hear from God again at the opening of the next chapter, but we will have to wait until next week to hear what God has to say. Until then, peace be with you all, and farewell. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.